<laughs> Amen. Well, guys, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We're continuing in our series, The Sermon Off the Mount, in Luke chapter 6. This week we're in Luke 6, and we'll look together at verses 27 to 31. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 31, I ask you to please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, his people, and these are the words of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word today. Father, we thank you for the gift of Holy Scripture, God-breathed, authoritative, infallible, powerful, sufficient to accomplish all that you send it forth to do. We ask for you to watch over your word today and to see to it that it accomplishes the purpose you have intended for it today. Bless the reading of this word and bless now, we pray, especially the preaching, the proclamation, the explanation, the application of this word. Write the truth of what Jesus says here upon our hearts. Stamp it upon our souls. Mark our lives by a commitment to go from this place trusting in Jesus, believing his word is true, believing his way is right, and doing all we can to be his faithful faithful followers. For His name's sake we ask it, and for His great glory. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, as you know, last week we started this new sermon series for the season of Lent that we're in, looking at Luke's version of what in Matthew we call the Sermon on the Mount. We looked last week at the Beatitudes, or what, what I call true blessedness in verses 20 to 26. And what we saw there is that the Beatitude, or the true blessedness that Jesus means for us to have, is a state of our souls not favorable conditions in our life. Sometimes we get confused, as we said last week, sometimes we get confused between having favorable circumstances, favorable outcomes and conditions in our life, and we think that's what God's favor means. And so when things aren't favorable, we must not have God's favor. And Jesus is correcting our mistaken notion of what it means to be favored by God. It's not measurable 
merely or even sometimes not at all in terms of the conditions of our life. True blessedness is actually independent of our circumstances, which is good news because that means if you're, like Jesus says, poor and hungry and weeping, verses 20 to 21, or persecuted and people spurn you and hate you, verse 22, if that means you're not blessed, if that means you don't have God's favor, then that's, that's kind of disappointing. <laughs> uh, I'd like to know that even if things aren't going well, God still f- is favorable towards me. God still loves me. God still claims me as His, independent of my circumstances. That's important. True blessed, blessedness is a state of the soul. Down on the inside, it's independent of circumstances. Circumstances can't touch this blessedness that Jesus has for us because it's not based on this life and this world. It is based on the promise of God's kingdom. It is based on the promises God makes to us in Christ. It's based on that heavenly reward that's coming our way in verse 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Why? Because look, behold, your reward is great in heaven. That knowing that I am an heir by grace of this promised reward through Christ and not through anything I've done to earn, deserve, or maintain it, that gives me a kind of tranquility, a kind of equanimity, a peace, a security, a stability down on the soul that's way deeper than just having moments of contentment and happiness and good feelings. It's something that sustains That's the beatitude Jesus offers. And those who live for the riches and the food and the stuff of this world, he pronounces woe upon them, curse upon them. Their end does not lead to the reward that belongs to those who are heirs of the kingdom. This life is their reward, and after this, that's it. But for us... This world can come and go. Like Martin Luther said in the hymn, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, and His kingdom is forever. That's where our stability comes from. That's last week. This beatitude sustains our joy even in the face of our enemies, verse 23 says. When it says rejoice in that day, He's talking about what what happens in verse 22. When people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. This This is something down in the soul that sustains our joy. Solid, solid joy. Even in the face of our enemies. And out of this overflow of beatitude and joy, Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. You see, love is the very heart of the ethics of Jesus. When asked by a Pharisee to name the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus replied in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law 
and the prophets. Loving God and loving neighbor is the foundation of all the other laws and everything in the prophets. Love of God and neighbor is foundational. It's the two greatest commandments, Jesus says. And in our passage this morning, we see that Jesus does not limit our love to neighbors that we like. He tells us to love even our enemies. They are neighbors too. The commandment to love our enemies is discussed in verses 27 through to 36. And this morning we're going to look at the first half, verses 27 to 31. And as we study this passage together, we learn three things from Jesus about loving our enemies. First, we learn about the actions of love. Second, the attachments of love. And third, the attitude of love. And so we begin with the first, the actions of love, covered in verses 27 and 28. But before we get into the actions of love, we need to take a step back. We need to ask ourselves, when Jesus says, love your enemies, we need to ask ourselves, what is a biblical enemy? We talk about a theology of angels and a theology of the end times and a theology of the church and a theology of the Christian life, but I bet we've never stopped to think, or we've probably never seen a book for sale that's a theology of enemies. What does the Bible teach? Is there a doctrine of what an enemy is? And who gets to decide? That's the question. Who gets to decide who is and is not an enemy? Because if I get to decide who my enemy is, I might draw the lines very differently than Jesus does. Anybody who rubs me the wrong way, anybody I don't like, anyone I'm not in the mood <laughs> to help, or anyone I'm not in the mood to be around, today that's an enemy. Ne next week, when their attitude changes, maybe we'll see about them being a neighbor. Right now, enemy. If it's just up to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what's best for me. I'm going to make it most convenient for me, who the enemy is and who the enemy isn't. The fact is, God gets to tell us who is and is not your enemy. Jesus describes what an enemy is in verses 27 and 28. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. What is an enemy in those two verses? An enemy does three things in those two verses. An enemy is someone who hates you. An enemy is someone who curses you. And I know we say curse in more of a colloquial way, like says cuss words to my face. <laughs> this is a little deeper than just says cuss words, cursing in that sense. But actually wishing God's worst for you. <laughs> Calling down curses upon you. I hate that guy. I hope he breaks his leg. I hope he runs his car off the road. I hope he loses his job. I hope, I hope, I hope. Someone who wants ill for you, curses you. Not just says not nice things to your face or behind your back, but curses. Someone who hates you, someone who wants to see you cursed, not blessed, and someone who abuses you. Abuses you. 
In verse 22, which I read earlier, it says, when people hate you and when they exclude you, and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil, they hear your name and they want to spit. They hear your name and they just get all riled up. I hate that guy. She makes me so angry. I cannot stand to be around her. This kind of stuff. This is what an enemy is. It's not just someone who you know, misspoke to you one time or you know, annoys you every now and then. Or, you know, we don't get along. I don't, I don't understand their sense of humor. So, I just, I don't know, I don't prefer to hang out with that person. Enemy. <laughs> no. An enemy is someone who does these things that Jesus describes. And Jesus teaches us in this passage what Christian retaliation looks like. When someone hates you and curses you and abuses you and excludes you and reviles you and acts like an enemy, how do Christians retaliate? How do you respond? What's your reaction to them when they're being an enemy? Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. We love them. We do not seek vengeance. We do not respond in kind. We do not attack. We don't plot how to get revenge. We do not hate them back. We do not wish them the worst. The only retaliation Jesus allows for his followers, for his disciples, is love. Here Jesus is teaching us nothing other than what God's law commands back, way back in Leviticus 19.18, when, uh, where we read this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but instead of that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's not like a nice line that he came up with. He actually got that from the Old Testament. That was already in the law way back when. And it says, don't take vengeance, don't bear a grudge in your heart against another person, but love your neighbor as yourself. And then he signs off on it, I am the Lord. That's the last line of Leviticus 19.18. I am the Lord. That's him putting his authority, his signature on that command. You should love your neighbors. Well, okay, Moses, who are you to tell me to, what to do? Oh, sorry, I am the Lord. <laughs> Not Moses. It's coming from me. Jesus just takes that and applies it here. Love your enemies is included in love of neighbor. And Paul himself echoes both Leviticus and Jesus in Romans 12, 17. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought, what to, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So when we decide to retaliate with rage and hatred and attack and curse somebody back, and, and if we respond to an enemy like an enemy, God says, you're actually taking what belongs to me. You're taking from me at that point. You are actually taking, my job is to see to it that sin is dealt with, that justice is served, that 
Sinners and rebellious people are dealt with appropriately according to my law, according to my justice. Vengeance is mine. I take care of paying people back for what they do. I'm God, you're not. And when you decide, I'm going to take it upon myself to be the one to exact revenge and retaliate. If someone's acting like an enemy to me, I'm going to be an enemy right back. God says, okay, vengeance doesn't belong to you. It's not your right to do that. When people act like an enemy towards us, we're not supposed to act like an enemy back towards them. So, Christian, when your enemy hates you, it ought to provoke your love, not your rage. When you get hated by an enemy, or reviled, or whatever it is, it ought to stir you up and provoke deep inside of you, not vengeance, not who do you think you are, how dare you talk to me like that. It ought to provoke your love for them. You must retaliate, Jesus says, with nothing but love. Most of us, when we hear this commandment, think, this stinks. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great, but when, when, when rubber meets the road and it's time to do it and the person's right there in front of you, I don't like being a Christian anymore. <laughs> I want to step out of my Christianity for a second and be in the flesh, and then when that person goes away, now I'll be a nice Christian again, <laughs> right? My point here is that none of us, none of us do this naturally, do we? Nobody. I mean, I, you know, you talk about different personality types. Some people are, are very confrontational. You confront them and you're going to, you know, you come at me, we're swinging, right? We're going to fight. I'm not that way. I'm very agreeable. Uh, and so someone comes at me and I'm just like, oh, well, what's wrong? How, how do we smooth it over? How can we make it nice? This is why I was good at customer service. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're so upset. I'm so sorry. Let's fix it. And... You know, that's the, I don't naturally want to like start fighting, right? But as soon as that horrible customer goes away, what am I going to do? Can you believe so and so? I wish I'd have said this. Oh man, you should have said that. Oh yeah, next time. <laughs> and like inside, I relive the whole experience and it goes very differently. I'm a mean, nasty person and I say a great one-liner and put them in their place and kick them out of the store and, right? It goes way better in my head than it did in, 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 in reality. So, that's, so no matter where you are on the personality spectrum of how you would respond to someone like that, just say, okay, sure, I don't want to fight, go away. Or you mess with the wrong guy and then start fighting. I mean, no matter where you are on that spectrum, all of us have a, do not naturally respond with love. Okay? The person who doesn't want confrontation isn't necessarily loving that person. Okay? They're just kind of, uh, I don't know, they just have a different personality that doesn't want to get, doesn't want to rough it up with anybody. I'm more like that. I'm more like no confrontation. Other people aren't. But I can't, I could not describe my natural reaction as love for that person. We do not live like this naturally. That's because what Jesus calls us to is a supernatural life. 
He calls us to live a supernatural life, to live a transformed life. To be, he tells us a whole different way of being human, the way God originally intended us to be. Now, part of our problem, right, part of our problem here with this command to love our enemies is that we misunderstand what Jesus is telling us to do. We think Jesus is telling us how to feel about our enemies when he's actually telling us how to treat our enemies. Jesus is commanding our behavior, not our feelings. He is explaining the actions of love, not the emotions of love. Nowhere does Jesus say that you need to like your enemies. Nowhere does Jesus say, feel warm and fuzzy about the hatred you're receiving. Get the, get the warm, fuzzy tingles over your enemy. Ooh, I just love my enemy so much. I just love it when he cusses me out. And it's fantastic. Oh, I just love it. I just, like the way we love food. Oh, you, you want food. You desire your favorite food. You enjoy it when you have it. You anticipate it. Your mouth waters. Yes, love my favorite food. Love my favorite whatever. When we mistake that feeling for what Jesus thinks we're supposed to feel towards our enemies, just love it. Oh, I can't wait for my enemy to come across my path today. I'm looking forward to some reviling this afternoon. Won't that be great? It doesn't say delight in your enemy, enjoy your enemy's company, adore your enemy. It doesn't say anything like that whatsoever. This kind of love that Jesus expects from us is rooted in a much deeper part of the heart. It is a sincere, sacrificial desire for your enemy's well-being. Loving your enemy means have a sincere, sacrificial desire for your enemy's well-being. You wish them nothing but good in your heart. And so you do them nothing but good in your actions. So I'm not saying your heart isn't part of it. I'm saying your feelings about that person isn't part of it. Don't wait for your heart to catch up before you start doing the actions of love, treating somebody with love. You don't wait before you, you don't wait to feel something first. You have in your heart this sincere, sacrificial if necessary, desire for your enemy's good and well-being. You wish them nothing but good in your heart, and so you do them nothing but good in your actions. And Jesus says this point blank, doesn't he? Verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Do them good. Jesus is commanding that from the overflow of that true blessedness that he gives us, from the overflow of that beatitude and joy that we have in him alone, we are then able to do good, to wish good, want good, and do good for even our enemies. He says... Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Take some of that blessedness you have from the Lord and try to spread it to that person. Be a blessing to them. Pray for those who abuse you. 
Not in a haughty kind of, I'll pray for you. (laughs) Not in that kind of like self-righteous way, but like praying for them, actually wishing that God would do good to them, wanting what's best for them. You don't delight in your enemy. You delight in doing good. Paul says this in Romans 12. I read the first part of this a minute ago. He says in verses 19 to 21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. He won't know what you're doing. (laughs) He will not understand. I'm coming at you as an enemy, and you're coming at me with love. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12. Christian, your heart may not always be in it. Do good anyway. Love anyway. While you're waiting for your heart to catch up, and you should pray, Lord, I want my heart to catch up. While you're waiting and praying for that, commit yourself to do good, to doing the actions of love. That leads us to point two, the attachments of love. In order to love our enemies like this, we must sacrifice our attachments to things that hinder our love. Jesus addresses this this issue in verses 29 and 30. He says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now Jesus is using parody. He's using parody to illustrate how we need to cultivate and practice detachment from the things most valued by the world so that we are free to love the way God wants us to love. He uses uh, four parodies here. And by a parody is he gives a ridiculous example, an over-the-top, wildly exaggerated example of what he means to make a point. So he uses four of these. He uses two in verse 29 and two in verse 30. In 29, he says, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Right? So this is, this is supposed to be kind of funny when people hear this. So someone comes up to you, slaps you across the face, and you say, that's a good one. Come on, one more. I got two cheeks. Let's go. Like that's, that's supposed to be a humorous thing for us to picture in our heads. Someone gets slapped, and they're like, oh, you missed this one. And actually letting them slap you on the other cheek. Like most people don't wouldn't do that. That's kind of an odd thing to do, right? It's a parody. Turn the other cheek. The second one he gives is, in verse 29, is, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So in other words, someone takes your coat. Hey, give me that jacket. I want that jacket. You give him your jacket. And you're like, oh, I got a shirt too. You take that off and hand him that too. <laughs> you want my coat? All right, here's my shirt. How about some shoes? I got shoes. You want my shoes? Very strange behavior, Jesus. Verse 30, he gives two more parodies. He says, 
Give to everyone who begs from you. So imagine in the ancient world, you're walking around, and there are impoverished people, homeless people, whoever, who are begging along the side, especially in a busy city like Jerusalem or one of the big cities in Galilee. There's going to be destitute people, deeply impoverished people sitting around. And he says, every single beggar that you come across who says, please, sir, spare a coin Give something to every single beggar you meet. All right, oh, here you go, here you go. Here, and just go down the street, just handing out everything you've got. If someone did that, they would, be, they would be on the street with them in about five minutes. They would be broken destitute too. It's an over-the-top example. You can't literally give to every single person who asks you, who begs of you for money. And then the second one is, from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So someone comes along and takes your house. Oh, good. I, I, I wanted you to have that. Oh, someone takes you all your stuff. Good. I didn't need that stuff. I want you to have that stuff. So someone who's... If you were like that, if you just let anybody who wanted to take from you just take everything, you would, you would be, you'd have nothing. You'd be homeless, penniless, helpless. What's Jesus' what's Jesus's point by giving these extreme examples? Does he literally want all of you to go out of here and give all your money away and give all your clothes away and give all your... No, that's not what he's telling us to do. What's his point? He's being extreme. He's using parody and exaggeration because he wants us to be detached from the things that we like and love in this world so that we can be free to love our enemies when they attack us in those things. Let me explain. Each of these four parodies teaches us to be detached from four things the world loves and that we naturally love. First, turn the other cheek. When someone walks up to you and strikes you right in your mouth, open-handed pops you right across your face. We, we use an expression like this today, don't we? Man, that was a slap in the face. What do we mean when we say that was a slap in the face? That guy just disrespected me. What a disrespectful, rude thing to do, to dishonor me like that. What a slap in the face. It comes from this expression, turn the other cheek. When someone walks up and slaps you in the face, it is a very, especially in public, that is a very dishonoring thing to do to you. They have shamed you. They've shamed themselves too. But they've brought great shame upon you to slap somebody in the face in public. And Jesus is saying... We do not need to be attached to love our own honor. Be detached from your own honor. If you love your own honor, when your enemy strikes you in the face, you will not turn the other cheek. You will not respond in love. You will retaliate by taking their honor. Second example. Give your tunic too. Give your, if they take your cloak, give your tunic. Give your clothes away. This is in the context of someone who sues you. It's clearer in Matthew's version of this saying. Someone sues you for your clothes and they take them away. You say, no, if you take my coat and I give you my shirt too, I'm going to have nothing to wear. If someone is suing you, you don't respond like an enemy. In other words, don't be so attached to your own rights, what you're entitled to. To sit loose with what you think people owe you. Because if you're worried about my rights, what I deserve, how you, how you better treat me, because don't you know who I am? I love my honor, and I love my entitlement and my rights. And if I love those things, 
when someone attacks my honor and attacks my rights, I will not respond with love. I will respond with anger and aggression to protect the thing I love, my honor, my rights. Third example, give to every beggar. What does that mean? Sit loose to your money. Don't be so attached to your wealth and finances and money. Because when someone comes along and attacks you in your finances, when love gets costly, if we love something else more, we will not be free from attachment to these things of life in order to love our enemy the way we should. We will not turn the other cheek. We will not give our tunic also. We will not be willing to lend and help and spend to sacrifice to love even our enemy. And then the last one, don't demand your stuff back. Have a detachment from your possessions. The world loves its honor, its rights, its money, and its stuff. My honor, my entitlement, my money, my stuff. And when my enemy assaults me and abuses me in these areas, I don't respond with love. I don't respond with love. I love these things more than I love that person. And Jesus is trying to teach us, sit loose from these things. Doesn't mean don't care about them. Doesn't mean don't be concerned with them. It means don't put them above other people. Love your enemy. When your enemy attacks you in these areas, you will never love your enemy if you love these things more. So Jesus says you've got to have a higher attachment. Not my honor, but God's kingdom. Not my rights, but God's free promises. Not my money and possessions, but my heavenly reward. That's what I'm attached to. That's what I love. I prize those things, my heavenly inheritance, and I seek true blessedness, independent of honor and rights and wealth and stuff. And when you're in that place, now you're liberated. You're free to love even those who revile you. This is what Jesus is teaching us. Not just to do on a surface level, but he's teaching us to be these kinds of people down deep on the inside who not just pretend, but who really are like this. This does not come natural. This takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit changing our hearts, changing our minds, changing our wills, changing our attachments, our priorities, our values, changing us all the way down and all the way out into our lives. Jesus calls us higher to have a higher love. And that brings us to our last point today. We've seen the actions of love, do good to your enemy. We've seen the attachments of love, to love God and the things of God more than self and the things of this world. And now we come to the attitude of love. And this is the last verse of our passage, verse 31. He says, Jesus says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Here Jesus tells us what to wish for. This goes back to what we said in point one. What are we wishing for? What are we wanting? As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. He's telling us that the way we want to be treated 
and the good we want for ourselves is what we ought to wish upon them. I want to treat you well. I don't want to be your enemy. You're not my enemy. You th- you're coming at me as an enemy and I'm coming at you as a neighbor and as a friend. And I wish for you what I wish for myself. God's blessings, God's favor, good things, good outcomes, blessing and prosperity. I want for you those things. And I want you to want those things for me. I'm not waiting for you to act the way I want you to. I'm going to act the way I want you to act. So that your standard for how to treat people isn't how they treat you. Your measure for how I ought to treat people isn't how they treat me. Jesus gives us the standard of behavior. A practical measure of how to determine what love looks like in each situation. In this situation with that person and in this scenario, what does wishing the best for them look like? How would I want to be treated in this situation? So that's how I'm going to act. And how they react and how they act towards me is irrelevant. They're not the measure and the standard. Christ is. This standard is independent of how we're treated and what our circumstances are. And this is the principled attitude of love. The principled attitude of love. No matter what people do to me, no matter how you speak to me or treat me, I am going to love. I'm going to do to you what I wish you would do to me. The overflow of beatitude is the ability to love no matter what. The overflow of beatitude is the ability to love no matter what. To love even our enemies. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And this is something that we do not do by nature and so we need to pray. We need to ask God to change our hearts and to change our minds. To make us into these kinds of people who don't just act this way but really are this way on the inside. We need to ask God to help us loosen our grip on the things of this world and seek first the kingdom and cling to the things that are above, the kingdom that is to come, the promises we have in Christ, to ask for that freedom from our love and attachment to stuff down here so that we can love God and neighbor the way Jesus calls us to. We cannot do this on our own. Christ has not only promised to give us the Holy Spirit to change us, He's actually gone and modeled it and done it for us in the Gospels. So we can pray, we can watch Jesus, and we can lean upon the Holy Spirit. And as we do these things, we begin to move in new ways, to respond in new ways, to have new hearts. This is what we need from the Lord in order to be true followers, the way Christ calls us to be. Love is everything in the teaching of Jesus. And out of God's love for us, we are free to then go and spread that love freely. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us indeed an overflow of your love for us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would flood our thoughts and affections that you would change our priorities and our values, that we would prize the things we ought to prize. 
that we would put the right things first, that we would begin to love the things of the world less and less, that we would begin to grow in our love for others. This is not something that we're good at. It's not something that we're really capable of on our own. But this is the way you've called us to go. So Lord, I pray that you would make us generous, sacrificial, selfless, humble, eager to love, eager to go and take that love you've given us and show it to others, to put the way you treat your enemies on display in the way we treat ours, to love regardless, to give regardless, to do good no matter what. Lord, would you work this miracle in our hearts and knit us together as a body that we may love one another the way Christ has called us to love. We ask it in his name. Amen.